Good afternoon, I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and I'd like to welcome you to our Aerospace Nation series. Today's topic cuts to one of the most important elements of national security, strategic deterrence. You know, for years, we've all watched the debates surrounding this topic. It's been incredibly predictable. The arms control community and, and advocates of the nuclear triad they exchange long-used talking points, and in many of these go back to the Reagan administration. But let's face it, the world's changed a lot as the years have rolled on by. I mean, public priorities, the security environment, technology have evolved significantly. So what we really wanted to do is understand where reality stands today on this issue. And what we see in the op-ed columns and the political debates, you know, is that reality or is it somewhere else? And I'll be honest, we were really surprised at the results of this poll. It's been three decades since the American public has had to think seriously about strategic deterrence amidst the pressures of the Cold War. In the meantime, we fought two conflicts whose results were far from positive. And so we thought this might engender a healthy skepticism regarding the return of, on defense investment. But the results signify something really different. And so with that, I'd like to introduce you to our speakers. First and foremost is Matt George, partner and head of research at Seven Letter Insight. That's the organization that we partnered with to execute this poll. He's a long experienced expert with a deep background in qualitative and quantitative research methodologies. We've also got Major General Larry Stutstream and Mark Gunzinger of the Mitchell team to help discuss broader factors related to the findings and in, all of you know, they both have a very deep bench of experience in the defense arena. And you know, just a proviso up front before I hand this over to Matt, our fundamental goal here was to better understand public sentiment when it came to national security and strategic deterrence. Our approach in this from day one was to execute this research in, in as unbiased of a fashion as possible. And look, we're obviously proponents of triad modernization, but we also wanted accurate data, not propaganda. So what you're going to see us present today is a study designed for accuracy, not an agenda. And from a focus perspective, you'll note that we highlighted the ground-based component of the triad in this work, and given its relevance to the Air Force and, and the reality that it's one of the more contentious facets of the modernization effort. So bottom line, we wanted to better understand what people really think and, and move past the rhetoric. So with that, Matt, over to you. Hey, thanks so much, Doug. Uh, and thanks everyone for joining today. I really appreciate your time. I'm very excited to share the results of our survey with you. Um, and I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen. We've put together a short deck that uh, goes over some of the key results from this survey. All right, um, so uh, we are going to go through uh, public opinion research results as it relates to national security and nuclear deterrence. Um, as with any poll, um, I would highly recommend that you look at the demographics first, try and understand exactly who it is that we're trying to talk to. Uh, within our sample, we tried to mirror our 2020 uh, election pool, right, to understand that's the most recent benchmark that we have for what the voting public looks like. And so that's what we use to mirror our sample. Um, our sample was with 2,150 respondents. Um, the poll was conducted online um, and it was conducted nationally. Um, as I just mentioned, the voter sample methodology mirrors the 2020 voting records uh, based on exit polling data and voter rolls, things that we've looked at voting records. Um, we believe that we have an accurate representation along key demographic markers such as gender, race, age, income, geographic region, ideology, and you'll see those on the next slide. 
Uh, and then it is also important to note that we also took regional oversamples from key states. Um, some of them were industrial straight states, such as Arizona, New Mexico, Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Um, and then we also took uh, uh, oversamples from um, states that contain ICBM missile silos. So uh, Colorado, Montana, North Dakota, Nebraska, and Wyoming. Um, of note, you may say, well, are those states then overrepresented in our sample? And the answer is no. Uh, we weighted them back down to their proportional representation for what uh, the 2020 vote totals would have looked like. So even though we, the, the reason that we did that oversample was simply to uh, look at their responses, see if anything different popped out. Uh, but when you look at the total numbers, which is what we'll be focusing on today, uh, their states, their responses from those states are not overrepresented. What you're seeing here is the breakdown of our uh, of our sample. So um, you'll note as you go through each one of these different categories, gender, ethnicity, age, household income, region, ideology, and the 2020 vote itself, uh, our survey was nearly identical to what the results of, um, uh, of the 2020 vote were. Uh, we're trying to model what the voting public looks like, and we think that we've got a very, very accurate representation of what that is here represented within the survey. So uh, let's move on to the actual findings of, uh, of the survey and the questions that we asked. Of note, you're gonna see the questions as they were portrayed in the survey here. You're gonna get the exact same question wording that was in the survey. Whatever the participant in the survey saw, you are also going to see. So what are some of the key findings about the security landscape overall? The first one is that uh, there's concern about different types of national security threats. Uh, the top concern currently is cyber attack, um, probably because uh, it's most uh, people view it as, as more likely to happen, happening every day. Um, the second point here, and this is perhaps in my mind, the, the big headline, which is that U.S. military superiority and military spending contribute directly and definitively to American sense of safety and security. So in other words, military superiority and the spending that gets us to that superiority um, has a direct impact on how Americans really think and feel. Uh, you're going to see on the next slide um, that jobs and economy, coronavirus and healthcare remain some of the top voter priorities. We ask voters um, from across the country what their top priorities are for uh, the president and the Congress over the next two years, and you'll see uh, what those are. Then we also asked uh, our respondents what their perceptions of America's top allies and top threats are as well. And you'll see the, the results for that in just a couple slides. Um, so let's jump in. Voter priorities over the next two years. Now, um, I've asked this question on similar, service, similar nationwide surveys, um, and uh, this is very consistent with what we've been getting. There's only been a, a couple of differences from other uh, fieldings of this question. The first one is that coronavirus used to be the number one top uh, priority thing that, that people want uh, to be uh, focused on by the president and Congress over the next few years. Uh, that has fallen in importance slightly. Uh, jobs in the economy is now in the number one uh, spot. But the top three have remained unchanged since the election. Jobs in the economy, coronavirus, healthcare, the top three priorities. The other thing that's really interesting on this is, and as you look um, down the list, you'll note that there are distinctly Democratic issues and there are distinctly Republican issues. So on the Democratic side, you have uh, coronavirus, you have healthcare, you have climate change in the environment, and you have racial equity. 
On the Republican side, you have immigration, taxes and spending, crime and safety, national security and terrorism, and corruption in government. Um, there are issues that seem to have fallen to one uh, side of the ideological spectrum. There are a couple that bridge the gap. Jobs and the economy is one of them. Coronavirus is, is sort of one of them. Um, and uh, crime and safety, also one of them. Of note, national security and terrorism um, is about in the middle of the list. And over the last few months, we've seen this particular uh, item raise a little bit in importance, uh, going from a little bit further down on the list, raising up a couple spots. Another one that we've seen raise up a couple spots is climate change and the environment uh, also seems to be moving up the list as well. Now, I mentioned that we asked our participants who our greatest ally, who America's greatest ally is. And the top three are the top three by a significant margin. So it's the United Kingdom, Canada, and Israel. Of note, uh, if you are a Republican, you are much more likely to say that Israel is one of our top allies than if you are a Democrat. And of note, if you are a Democrat, you're much more likely to say that France and Germany, two of the other European countries, are ally than if you are a Republican voter. But United Kingdom and Canada tops top two by, by, a, by a significant margin there. When we look at America's greatest threat, uh, we have four that come to the top um, by, again, a pretty significant margin. Those are China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. You have three and you could argue at a half, three and a half um, nuclear powers there. Um, and uh, the next two are also uh, sort of a second tier, Iraq and Afghanistan um, as well. But China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, uh, by a pretty sig significant margin, those are the ones that come to the top in terms of American perception of who are the greatest threats out there. Uh, so of note here, just like there is a small amount of uh, variance based on um, ideology. If, for instance, if you are a re uh, Republican voter, you're much more likely uh, to see China and Iran as a threat than if you're a Democratic voter. If you are a Republican, I'm sorry, if you're a Democratic voter, you're much, you're slightly more likely uh, to see Russia and North Korea as threats than if you're a Republican voter. So now let's get into perceptions of national security, what to do with those threats. We asked participants um, to indicate their level of concern for each of the following national security threats. And of note, when participants took this, they saw these different items that they were then asked to rate their concern level for. They saw those in a randomized order. So participant one may have seen cyber attack by another nation as the first one, uh, just sort of in the list that you're seeing now. But another participant might have seen them in the opposite order, in a completely randomized order. Uh, that's to, to uh, to downplay any type of order bias that might happen within the survey. Now let's look at the results. The top two, as I mentioned before, are cyber attacks, uh, theoretically, because these are most uh, common, right? That's probably happening right now. Um, and so uh, people do see that uh, they have a, a high level of concern for them. A couple of other things to note here. The first one is that acquiring nuclear weapons is much more of a concern than an attack by nuclear weapons, a nuclear attack by either a terrorist organization or another nation. This might suggest that deterrence may be working, right? So that um, the idea of acquiring them is, is, uh, is more possible than the idea of an attack. And that's the idea that, they, that voters may be recognizing and respecting some of the deterrence that is out there that the, that the United States has. 
I also mentioned that this may be, um, in my mind, one of the headlines uh, of this uh, of the survey, which is that military superiority absolutely contributes to a sense of security. Um, we asked the question on the left, does knowing that the United States has global military superiority make you feel more safe, less safe, or does it not make a difference? And by a pretty wide margin, um, we get people saying, we get voters saying that it makes them feel more safe. And that makes sense, right? Of course, uh, military superiority, it's easy to say, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, or it's easy to say that, that that military superiority makes them feel safe. But then we ask the flip side of the question as well to see what the difference is, to see if, uh, it's a hypothetical question, to see if we removed that superiority. What does that do to people's uh, feeling of safety and security? So we ask if, China and Russia had global military superiority. Would that make you feel more safe, less safe, or does it not make a difference? And now we see the flip side, right? We see uh, a majority of uh, people, in some cases, uh, like almost a super majority, saying that it makes them feel less safe. So this indicates that while global military superiority may make, uh, may make voters feel safe now, if that were to be removed, that it would make them feel less safe. And therefore, Military superiority contributes to your sense of safety and security uh, by a pretty significant amount. Um, it is important to note here the difference between Republicans and Democrats, right? So um, on the on the left side of your screen, we've got it's there's a slight difference, but not that big of a difference. But over here on the right hand side of the screen, we have a pretty decent difference in terms of uh, intensity and overall feelings of uh, less safety and less security between Republicans and Democrats if China or Russia had uh, global military superiority. And this suggests uh, simply that uh, more education efforts need to be uh, uh, conducted on what the efforts that the military is taking um, and what impact that might have on our sense of global military superiority. So now we... Um, it's easy to say that this this concept of military superiority um, would make you feel safer or less uh, safe, depending on whether or not we have it or not. But then we wanted to take it a little bit more practical. And so we said, do you believe that spending on national defense projects increases or decreases your feeling of security or does it not have an impact? What we find here is that even uh, across the across the ideological spectrum, um, we see people saying that it increases, greatly increases or somewhat increases their feelings of security. So 77% of Republican voters, 62% of Democratic voters agree that spending on national defense projects, something that's a little bit more concrete, something that they can wrap their head around rather than this idea of military superiority, spending itself increases their feelings of security. Um, let's move on to strategic nuclear deterrence, understanding voter sentiments about that deterrence. And there's three key findings here. First one is that Americans agree, and it, it's by a wide margin, that having a modern deterrence system is a critical priority for the Def uh, Department of Defense. And then after being given a baseline context uh, about current ICBM lifestyle and capabilities, uh, voters prefer that those uh, those missiles be replaced with a modern system rather than being refurbished or phased out. Now there's this phrase after being given baseline context, we're asking voters to give us their feelings, their sentiments 
about nuclear deterrence, about ICBMs, something that the average voter likely doesn't know that much about. And so what we did was we, uh, we, we took care to give them information. And I want to be clear, the difference between information and an argument within some of these uh, questions that we asked them to make uh, a judgment call afterwards. Information is the facts. This is just simply describing the way things are. An argument takes that one step further. It says, this is the way things are, therefore, and then creates a conclusion out of that. We were very careful with, and Doug mentioned this at the, at the outset, we were very careful to make sure that our questions were focused on information given. So that baseline context is all about providing just that, that information rather than an argument and allowing voters to then make their own conclusions and, 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 uh, and answer the questions based on it. Uh, most voters, uh, the last one, most voters are supportive of either increasing or continuing current levels of spending on nuclear deterrence. This makes sense. Um, as we'll see, people tie nuclear deterrence to uh, feelings of uh, safety and security, and they also tie it to, uh, so if they're okay with military spending, making them feel more safe and secure, then makes sense that they would uh, want to continue to increase those amounts. So let's look at the, uh, the first slide in this section. 91% uh, agree with this statement. And this is the statement as they saw it. America's nuclear deterrence capability is critical to our national safety and security. It should be one of the highest priorities of the Department of Defense. And we asked them, do you agree with that statement? Do you disagree with that statement? And across the board, across ideological spectrums, uh, we have strong agreement with that. And in fact, we've got over half who strongly agree uh, with that statement. So this, uh, it, as Doug mentioned at the outset of this, right? It's been it's been years since since deterrence has been something that we've been talking about. Um, terrorism, cybersecurity um, have been sort of the the focus of um, of national security conversation. And so the fact that we still have ninety one percent agreement with the statement um, suggests that that voters really do have a respect for the deterrent value that the uh, that the tools offer uh, the the United States. Uh, modern deterrence is equally critical to national and global security. We wanted to see in asking this question if there was a difference between um, security here at home or security or that, that deterrence provides globally. There's very little difference, right? So Americans understand this concept um, as both a value here at home, value abroad as well. Now we asked this question, um, we gave them a discrete choice. So we said, which of these two statements comes closest to your opinion? There's a statement on the left, statement on the right. Statement on the left, which 81%, 8 in 10 agree with or chose of the two, the United States should have ground-based nuclear defense capabilities. And then we offered a little bit of context. Some, uh, some say that without it, China and Russia could overtake militaries, uh, America's military power. And then on the right side, we've got uh, the other side of it. So, so the United States should not have ground-based nuclear defense capabilities. We kept these statements very, very simple um, uh, for the reasons that I talked about before. This is not something that the average voter is asked about very often. So we wanted to make the statements very clear and, and, and concrete. But in this statement, we also offered uh, the counter, right? So in each one of these, we're offering the counter, um, so the, the supporting information for it. So some say that costs uh, that it costs too much to maintain and that there are other options to keep the US safe. With that contextual information, um, eight in 10 still said that uh, the United States should have ground-based nuclear defense capabilities. Uh, so therefore security um, trumps cost for eight in 10 voters uh, in this case. 
Now, um, we asked a series of questions where we uh, gave voters information. We then asked them, given that information, please draw a conclusion of these options. So uh, here's the question text as the participants saw it. The current US ground-based intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, that are used for our ground-based nuclear response capabilities are all over 50 years old and require attention in order to function correctly. Based on that information, which statement do you agree with most? So if, if something, uh, given that information, there's three things that you can do with it. You can replace it with a modern system. You can refurbish, refurbish it to extend its current life, or you can eliminate it entirely. But well, we've already seen that the eliminate entirely is not as uh, exciting an option for, for voters. They're, they're, they didn't like that one. Uh, but between the other two, uh, we see half of voters saying that they would rather replace it with a modern system. We gave a little bit more information. Um, in this question, we said over the last decade, China and Russia have made significant investments in their country's nuclear weapons capabilities. For example, we estimate that the majority of Russia and China's systems are compromised of modern technology. Therefore, what do you want to do? Well, with this information, um, now we have uh, nearly two thirds of voters saying that they uh, would like to replace it with a modern system, replace current ICBMs uh, with uh, a modern system. And lastly, we showed them a photo uh, and we said, here's a photo of 100 new missile silos China is currently building, which signal a major expansion of China's ground-based nuclear capabilities. Based on this information, which statement do you agree with? Now you'll note between, I'm gonna flip back and forth between the, 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 this slide and the last slide you just saw. Here's the last slide you saw. Here's this slide that you saw. There's not that much of a difference. So um, with, this information it brings up Republican support for replace with a modern system by about six points. Uh, the total only rises by about two points. And the Democratic support for replacing with a modern system stays roughly the same. We wanted to understand um, how these different actions might impact voters feelings of safety and security and so we asked each one of them uh previously in the survey you've been seeing some some ranking questions right where we ask voters to prioritize different things or choose things from a long list in this one we are asking them to uh rate their feelings of safety and security for each one of these different elements and just as before on that that threat uh like what concerns you most question uh these were asked in randomized order as well the one that uh, would make people feel, make voters feel the safest, the one that's furthest to the left is stronger uh, cybersecurity and intelligence capabilities. Uh, directly next to that is efforts to stop terrorism. And directly next to that is replacing outdated ground-based nuclear ICBMs with modern technology. Now, if we compare replacing outdated uh, ground-based nuclear ICBMs with modern technology with the second one from the right, which is refurbishing them to extend their life. You see uh, that replacing them actually affords Americans a sense, a, high, a greater degree of sense of security and safety than refurbishing them does. And then again, if we look at eliminating them altogether, the, the option that's furthest to the right, we actually see now that we have a majority of Americans, 50%, uh, who say, half of Americans rather, who say that um, 
it would make them feel less safe. Uh, 31% of them saying much less safe if we were to eliminate ground-based nuclear uh, capabilities altogether. Eight in 10 believe that uh, spending on modern nuclear capability is justified. Again, as before, we offered a discrete choice. Which statement do you agree with most? On the left-hand side, again, we have eight in 10 agreeing with this statement or choosing this statement. Ensuring that America has modernized military nuclear capabilities contributes to my sense of national security, and we should therefore spend military budget to appropriately modernize our capability. On the right-hand side is the flip side of that. It doesn't contribute to my sense of security and safety, and therefore we should not spend military budget on it. Eight in 10 would prefer to uh, spend military budget to appropriately modernize that capability than the, than the flip side of that argument. Now we wanted to ask uh, how, how much should we be spending, right? Should we be spending more or less about the same? Um, and so we asked them again to uh, assign either more or less or about the same, or I don't know, to each one of these different elements. Um, you'll remember what would make them feel more safe is investment in security and intelligence capabilities. And here we see that people are more willing to invest more in, in surveillance and intelligence ca uh, collection capabilities. So the survey is very, very consistent as we go through. Uh, then we see, we ask all three arms of the nuclear triad, uh, should we modernize each one of these different elements? And we see relatively that they're, they're, they're relatively close in terms of whether or not people want to spend more, uh, spend uh, about the same, and then there's a, a small fraction of people who say that they want to spend less on them. And lastly, on the, on the end, we have investing in new non-nuclear weapons and equipment, and we have far fewer people saying that they would want to spend more on that far more people, in fact, a plurality at that point, saying that they want to spend the same amount. What's clear here is that no one really wants to, uh, there's very few, but not no one, there are very few people who want to spend less on, uh, on military investments. Um, again, going back to the beginning of the survey, spending on military in, increases people's feelings of safety and security. So we wanted to uh, put that spending in context, right? So, um, saying that we should spend more or less is, is easy when you don't have any sort of reference point. So we gave them a reference point. We gave them a little bit more information. Nuclear deterrence makes up less than 5% of our total defense budget. Should we continue to devote this percentage to nuclear deterrence? And we gave them the option, um, I don't know, or we should devote less, or we should devote the same, or we should devote more. And in most cases, uh, we have uh, a majority of people saying that we should either continue the 5% or we should devote more. Uh, again, a very small percentage of people saying that we should devote less to nuclear deterrence. And with that, uh, it's, I, I actually think that this is really instructive uh, in a time when uh, the conversation is really about ballooning federal deficits, uh, the pandemic, the real and, and real defense budget cuts. And so the idea that uh, people would want to continue or increase spending on, on this element really does uh, lend to the perception that they hold value in this uh, in, in nuclear deterrence. With that, I will turn it back over to Doug uh, for questions. No, Matt, I really want to thank you so much. I mean, what, the work you and your team did is, is really impressive. And I think it's pretty obvious why we're surprised at the results. You know, I set it up front, but it's been a long time since the public has had to think about strategic deterrence, but it seems to clearly resonate with them today. 
So before I hand this over to the audience for questions, I'd like to discuss this a little bit with uh, our other team members. And first off, for Gonzo, what are your main takeaways from the report? Yeah, uh, Matt, also congratulations for an excellent poll. Uh, first, you know, we're really not surprised that defense doesn't rank as a top priority uh, for our nation's major political parties. Because let's face it, it wasn't even a, a significant talking point during the debates in the last uh, presidential election. But more broadly speaking, this poll suggests there is a broad level of support in our nation for investing in defense, despite what has happened for the past uh, a decade in Iraq and Afghanistan. Plus, the top threats in this poll, or what keeps Americans up at night, as this poll uh, posed it, reflect direct threats to the U.S. homeland, cyber attacks, which are happening every day, and nuclear attacks by a terrorist group or rogue state, which could be characterized as an existential threat. So they are both the most likely and then the most dangerous threats. And that makes perfect sense. And finally, I also think poll results on the need to maintain a modern military helps explain why we saw Congress plus up the defense budget despite the administration's desire for lower budget top line for the DAD. Now, simply said, there's broad public support for the men and women in uniform that we asked to go in harm's way defend our nation. I appreciate it, Gonzo. Stutz, what about you? What surprised you? I mean, what did the numbers reaffirm from your perspective? Yeah, uh, once again, I'll say great job, Matt. Uh, super pro job. Uh, I think, uh, Doug, what, the fact that Americans have such a high regard for nuclear deterrence, its modernization, appropriate funding, that, that's just very eye-popping to me. When you think about it, uh, if looking at the first slide of demographics, I don't think half of the respondents uh, were a voting age at the end of the Cold War. And then you think about the 20-year distraction in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, where nuclear things, all things nuclear, are just not thought about. And then, you know, it's clear that the zero nuclear advocates and arms control folks, you know, they they do flood a lot of content around major decisions. So, I. I think we need to all be aware of how we may misunderstand how strong that public perception is, especially Congress, uh, that a vast you know, share of Americans are fully on board with uh, the nuclear uh, deterrence uh, architecture and its funding. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, Gonza, if you're going to brief top defense leaders on this data, you know, what might be some of your main points that you'd highlight to them when it comes to engaging on strategic deterrence? Yeah, I think the poll indicates that our public really doesn't understand uh, the age of Minuteman 3 and some of our other triad capabilities. Minuteman 3, for example, was delivered during the Nixon and Carter administrations. Uh, the reality is that Minuteman 3 and some of the other components triad may no longer be able to execute their mission as intended given the emerging threat environment. So what's mostly out there, the arguments the arms control community that they're exact same arguments that I've seen for the past uh, 40 years during the Cold War and, and after. But what I would say to our um, uh, public leaders, uh, three things have changed and this is 
these are the things that we really need to inform, uh, tell the American public. Unlike most of the past 30 years, we're now in a multipolar strategic competition with China and Russia, both who now have nuclear triads. Second, China is building hundreds of new ICBM silos and a new bomber and nuclear cruise missiles because they're really in a nuclear breakout which is not consistent with their no first use limited deterrence uh, uh, declaratory policy. Finally, DOD cannot further defer replacing triad capabilities that were designed and became operational 30 to 50 years ago, some of which have exceeded their planned design lives at this point. So the choice really is to modernize or by default, unilaterally give up parts of our nuclear triad. Those are the points that I think are uh, worth repeating over and over. Yeah, no, agree. Scott, what about you? I mean, what value do you think the poll has for leaders at the Pentagon? Well, there's there's some very interesting dynamics just in the polling technique Matt, Matt was describing. Uh, first, I'd say the Pentagon can be confident uh, that the country wants a strong nuclear deterrent, one, one that's modern. Uh, but there needs to be a determined effort. You saw when the respondents were given just a little information, for example, about the age of the ICBM force being 50 years, suddenly that means something more. They didn't know that. And we've talked about how the American public generally always thinks uh, that everything the military has is modern. So there's a lesson here, number one, on the nuclear deterrence side, is the Pentagon needs to educate more about the triad. And you know the triad, this marvelous uh, combination of land-based missiles, sea-based missiles, and our bomber fleet provides an, ex an extraordinary amount of resilience, which, which is in the calculus uh, of the adversary in terms of being deterred from doing something you know, bad to us or one of our allies. And uh, I think we have to be, be clear that, that the public can also be manipulated. So if somebody says, hey, the ICBM force is duplicative, the Pentagon needs to get out in front of that because it's not a matter of that. It just does the same thing as one of the other two arms. And, and Doug, one last thing, and I know you appreciate this, is for the Air Force in particular, this, this piece about educating people is so important. You know, you have an Air Force that is the oldest and the smallest. If the, if the public thinks, the Air Force is at the cutting edge and modern, that's going to affect choices in terms of pressure on Congress to fund appropriately what uh, America's air and space power needs. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm gonna toss this one over to both of you. And we found it really interesting that, you know, a good portion of this data was actually quite balanced regardless of party, but there was a distinct difference when it came to perceptions regarding implications of, of China or Russia having greater level of control in the global security environment. Um, and it came down to, to democratic oppressions. What are your thoughts on that? Go ahead, well, I'll go, I'll go, go ahead, Gonzo. Yeah, uh, when we got to uh, America's most important allies, it was interesting to note that uh, the top uh, four or five, I believe, they're all members of NATO. That is something that the American people are very familiar with. The threat for decades was first the Soviet Union and now a resurgent Russia. Uh, so I think that is flavored in the, in the political parties as well. But now we have a, um, 
modernizing People's Liberation Army with a triad and other capabilities that frankly uh, could deny our nations and other nations access to the South China Sea, incredibly important shipping lanes, and uh, other areas in the Western Pacific that our mutual economies uh, depend on. So I, I really think both parties are beginning to gain an awareness of uh, that threat and what it means. Yeah, I'll just add to Gonzo. I wonder, and I would, I'm pretty confident saying this, that you know, if this poll would have been taken 10 or 15 years ago, uh, both Republicans and Democrats would have been uh, looking forward to the great you know, days when the globalizing and interleaving of economies and, and education and all that sort of thing was going to uh, bring a democratic China, you know, as we talked about in the mid 90s. So uh, I, I agree with Gonzo. I think this trend's in the right direction, but it, it also goes to, Doug, it goes to the need to continually educate, educate, educate. Yeah, for sure. Again, I'm going to toss this to both of you. You know, polls are obviously useful for taking the temperature of where the public stands on, on given issues. Do you have a couple of thoughts on how future polls could expand on this or, or add to new results for, for what we saw today? Yeah, I'll start. Um, first of all, I wish we could uh, do an unlimited poll. There are so many things we've talked about since uh, we've seen these results, especially the way that Matt conducted this to understand the objectivity and the confidence we can have in these results. Uh, but on the topic at hand, I would like to see, uh, you know, that whole notion of 5% of the budget uh, reinforcing uh, the, the sense of security that our nuclear enterprise has. You know, we're about to enter the replacement uh, period of acquisition for the ICBM. That's the, the GBSD system. And it's going to bump up the budget to maybe, uh, I'm not positive, but maybe seven or 8% share. Does that affect public set sentiment? Is there a place where the public uh, uh, starts to not support, but I don't think so. I think they would, for uh, quite a bit budget share, based upon the results of these questions, they would support a plus up to modernize pretty broadly. So it's, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Uh, I'll, I'll throw a twist in here. It's important that we, we poll our population, understand their sentiments and priorities, of course. But it's also important to understand the priorities of our allies and partners. I think it would be fascinating to ask, you know, Japan, Germany, Israel, and others, what do you think the United States should invest in? What do you think our priorities should be? What do you think if we allow our extended nuclear deterrence shield to wither away? Would that lead to a nuclear arms race in the Middle East or in the Western Pacific and so forth? Give us your thoughts. I, I think that'd be a, a fascinating poll. Very well said. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, Matt, again, toss the last one to you. What were the main things you took away from the exercise? Any surprises? You, know, you obviously do this a lot, engaging with public opinion. Yeah, um, I, I think the, the biggest surprise to me was that people agreed on something. Um, <laughs> uh, in in you, you saw the slide earlier where we showed all the different instances different all the different issues where you know it's either really far to the republican side or it's really far to the democrat side um it seems like there are 
very, very few issues where uh, both sides of the aisle agree on something. Um, and so to, to find a, a concept that um, has the same level of support or roughly the same level of support from Democrats and Republicans alike, that's pretty unique. Um, and it suggests that it's a, like a political winner, right? In terms of if you're a, a, an elected official, easy win, right? Something that, that both sides of the aisle agree on. Um, that does not happen very much. Um, so that, that would be my biggest surprise is that simply there was agreement on something. Uh, and having done this quite a bit, uh, there's, that's, that's rare. Matt, I yeah. think that uh, that's the comment of the day. You're, I think you're absolutely right. Something people can agree on. No, for sure. It is, it is really interesting. And again, like I said, we, we were surprised by it and, uh, and yet the, the data is what it is. So it's, it's really interesting. We're now going to open up the session for questions uh, from the audience. So as a reminder to our listeners, you can participate in the Q&A by using the raise your hand function on your device. When I call on you, please unmute your mic and state your name and affiliation for our guests before asking your question. And you can also submit a question in writing using the Q&A function. And at that point, you know, I'll just read out your question out loud. So first off here, we've got a question about independent voters. Uh, we had Republicans and, and Democrats here, uh, but you know, Matt, what, what's your opinion? If we had included a category that was really focused on independence, would that have changed the data? What's your experience with that? So the experience with that is that uh, th this is going to be an easy answer, uh, and but but please don't take it as such. Um, every time that we include independents, they fall roughly in between the two um, in terms of their support levels. It's very infrequent that we see independents as an outlier. Uh, the question is, do they fall closer to the Republicans or do they fall closer to the Democrats? And there we can see where public opinion might swing on a particular issue. In this case, the difference between Republican and Democrat was not that big to begin with. And so you can imagine the independents falling right in between. Um, but when we've got uh, such broad agreement uh, across most of these different questions that we asked, uh, we didn't, I, I felt that it would be almost confusing and complicating to include them. But if you want to imagine them right in, in between the two. No, that's interesting. We've got another question here, and, and this is we actually chatted about this yesterday in preparation for this, but it's did the respondents have an understanding of how much the nuclear ICBM replacement cost would cost and, and did that affect their response? And you know, Matt, over to you on kind of setting the context of how you set this up. But. So the answer is is no, we did not put a, a dollar amount to it. Um, we the only information that we gave them was that nuclear deterrence as a thing costs about five percent of the uh, of the defense budget, uh, and there's a reason for that. These are very very difficult, con like complicated issues that we were asking public opinion about, um, and so we needed to make it as simple as possible for people to understand this. Uh, if we put a billion number, if we put a million number, uh, people can't conceptualize that. It's not something that they can make a judgment call on. And so what we tried to do was to make it simple by offering simply that percentage number to give them some context uh, and with which to make a decision. But the answer is no, we did not give them uh, exact amounts. We did not give them uh, what, the, what the real terms 
number would be for, for what the, the cost would be. Now, let me add that uh, in terms of the defense budget, for since the end of the Cold War, we've been spending an average somewhere between two and a half to three percent of our defense budget, not GDP, just a defense budget on our nuclear forces, which is far, far, far below what we've ever done in history of the Department of Defense we spent on it. So now, yeah, there's going to be some increase. Uh, the poll said five percent uh, in the future it could uh, inch up to seven to eight percent and then come back down after we buy. The, the new capabilities. So I think percentage was a good way of doing it. Yep. Got another question here, and, and that's referring to chart 21, that investment in conventional weapons is about half as preferred to cyber intel and, and strategic deterrence, um, you know, amongst those polled. And yet, oftentimes, uh, commanders say that the conventional options uh, are more flexible for escalation control, but that the commanders really lack capacity in, in that regard. And, and so the, the person is asking, is this an issue? Um, and do we have thoughts and observations on this? I'll, I'll kick this one off. Yeah, the fact that we've got the oldest, smallest Air Force in history is a catastrophic situation because no other element of joint power projection is possible without control of the air domain and the effects we, we achieve through the air domain. Space Force, again, is the exact same and yet underfunded tremendously. So I think that we've been living in a zone where we've been able to get by for 30 years and it is masking the risk that, that we currently have. A nation that has 20 B-2 stealth bombers as its entire stealth long-range strike fleet, um, that, that's a pretty catastrophic state. Uh, the fact that 20% of our fighters are just fifth gen and the rest are really Nixon-era designs is, is not a good thing. So that's my soapbox. I'll offer that it makes absolute sense that Intel comes out close to the top. We need to understand, to be able to detect in advance, as far in advance as possible, uh, emerging threats for a nation, be it cyber, be it nuclear, be it conventional, be it irregular warfare for that matter. No surprise there. And also, as we said earlier, cyber and nuclear threats, those are the most likely and the most dangerous. So prioritizing that above uh, conventional weapons is, is not a surprise, does not imply we shouldn't invest in new conventional weapons, because that can prevent us from ever getting into a nuclear exchange to begin with. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in too. I have to uh, go back to what Doug said is, uh, or the question said uh, about escalation control. My gosh, if we don't get serious about a Department of Defense that is prepared to deter conventionally uh, the Chinese, uh, we will quickly move to either a surrender where what China does is a fait accompli. We can, there's nothing we can do about it. Or uh, we quickly escalate uh, to a nuclear exchange of some type and we just can't go there. Uh, that's a weakness while we're weak. And of course, uh, I'll double, double bang that nail, Doug, uh, especially in the Pacific, it's all about air power and space power making that difference. Yeah. And I think the other thing, you know, guys, is that this is an ecosystem and that, you know, it's, it's a classic line. People say, well, you, you've never used the, the triad. You use it every day. Obviously, it's a point deterrence. And you need to have a balanced set of capabilities between 
the conventional elements, newer elements like space and cyber, as well as, as nuclear strategic deterrence. And it's not a matter of either or, it's a matter of a balance. So it's, uh, it's all in a, in a pretty rough state right now. And, and you know, we'll see how it goes. Question here kind of relates to it. Um, and, and we, I don't want to take this in a political vector at all, but the questioner was asking if we were surprised that the budget request that came over this year um, didn't have more cuts in it. And, and I would just say, uh, off the top of my head, looking at public support for defense, um, far more bipartisan than, than I guessed. Um, I'd say it reflects yeah. uh, what we saw and certainly the plus ups on the Hill. Yeah, good point though. Yeah, I, I agree, Doug. Uh, political rhetoric aside, which of course occurs during any election, the fact of the matter is, I do think it's a broad understanding that our military writ large is aging out because we've neglected modernization for 30 years, uh, as, you, as you said. Yeah. And I, I'd go one step further, uh, Gonzo, is that once again, that the Department of Defense and uh, the Air Force with respect to the ICBM force and the nuclear command and control system, uh, which is so important to modernize, they shouldn't be bashful about this. Uh, and uh, in particular, the Department of the Air Force uh, can be confident it could ask for more resources and it would have the support of the public. Yeah. Matt, we've got a question here for you. Um, did your study involve uh, informing the public that U.S. nuclear deterrent capability provides an umbrella of extended deterrence to neutral defense treaty allies, such as Japan, Republic of Korea? Um, and if it did, how did that shape responses? Uh, we did not. Uh, that is a bit of information that we did not include within the, the confines of the poll. Um, Again, we wanted to keep this as uh, keep a it, it was an incredible challenge to keep such a uh, complicated issue um, in the realm of questions that the public can answer. Uh, and so tying it to the impact for national security, we didn't go into detail on what that might be. We did ask a question um, and I'm pulling it up here, uh, see if I can find it. But we did ask a question about whether or not uh, it's important for global security that US has modern nuclear deterrence capabilities. And there we saw that 74% uh, of total, uh, that includes 83% of Republicans and 69% of uh, Democrats said that it's very important uh, to global security. When you add in somewhat important to that, uh, it's in the 90s for uh, across the board, 90% uh, um, saying that it's important. So um, I, I do think that people recognize the role that the U.S. plays in global security because of our deterrence capabilities. I think also inherent in that perception is the thought, as, we, as, as some of my colleagues have said, uh, that the capability is currently modern, right? So that there's that misperception there. Um, and so uh, it, it begs the question of like, do we need to inform the public a little bit more about the current state of the uh, of uh, ICBMs? Yeah. Got another question here, and it's it's focusing on the national defense strategy language, which is focusing more on strategic competition with Russia and China, 
and how that might impact public perceptions about the need for strategic nuclear deterrence and whether we would have seen similar results before the NDS really did refocus us in this lane, which, which we hadn't seen for many years previously. Um, you know, I'll open it up to everybody on that one. Yeah, I come back to the, to the, you know, the observation that still the public sentiment is so strong. So do I think it contributed? Yes, I, I, I do. But um, once again, we, we would need to go back a, a poll 15 years ago to make, make that, you know, conclusive. Uh, over to you, Gonzo. I'm sorry, I cut you off there. No, I cut you off. Uh, I, I do think it had some impact, but I think the greater impact would be uh, uh, come from reporting on the death of democracy in Hong Kong, continued suppression of the Uyghurs in Western China, the encroachment near occupation of the South China Sea uh, by China, their rapid military modernization, the statements that they will prevail and, and become the international order. Uh, that, I believe, has uh, really set the tone and uh, awakened a lot of Americans to what's really going on. Yeah. Got a question here. Um, obviously, Stutz and Gonzo, in your past um, jobs in, in uniform and, and senior positions, as well as what you do today, you're with a lot of, uh, you're, you're around the table in a lot of conversations. Do you think that these public optics shape how leaders consider these issues or do the strategic arguments just kind of hold the, the water and, and level us out um, over the long haul? Well, I think that that such strong public sentiment is a factor. Uh, you can say that uh, presidential administrations, uh, whether Democrat or Republican, are somehow so uh, dogmatically wedded to their positions that they will uh, be thrown out of the White House uh, if they, they'll push them hard enough that they're willing to be thrown out of the White House. Let, let's let's get reality here. It's politics, and and to have power, you have to you know respect the the will and opinions and desires of the people, and that that's influenced in a number of ways. Uh, some we can control, some we cannot. So I think. I think the basis uh, of the, the power of this survey and what we now know about American opinion about strategic nuclear deterrence is a factor in decisions going forward for uh, the politicians. All set. Okay, any, any saved rounds from anybody? I'll just uh, uh, return to Matt for, for a moment. This is probably, I, I've seen a lot of polls, both when I was in government and out, and this was one of the more open, honest ones uh, uh, that I've seen on, on this issue. So again, uh, kudos to you very much. Thank you very and much. I, I, I appreciate it. You bet, Matt. And I also want to say, I, I learned a lot about how polling can influence the outcome of questions. And I, I also just uh, really praise the fact that you got us to such an objective uh, result, and that means a lot. We have got a baseline we can we can uh, have confidence in. Thanks, I appreciate that. Uh, any poll is a is a tool in understanding public opinion, um, and the measure of the usefulness of that tool should be how accurate it is. And so I, 
I firmly believe that uh, if you can model the, the population in the right way, and if you can ask questions in an unbiased way, you get a better read on what public sentiment is, and that allows you to make decisions, draw conclusions, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so that that was the goal within this poll. Absolutely, I appreciate that. Good deal. Well, thanks, everybody. We've come to the end of this Aerospace Nation event. So big thanks again to, to Matt and Seven Letter Team. And you can find these research results on our website. And so to you, our audience, uh, from all of us here at Mitchell Institute, it was great having you here today. And thanks so much. Take care.